Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are with us always. We have the presence of your Holy Spirit. We have the ministry of Christ interceding on our behalf. And we ask that even now your spirit will illumine our minds, that you will make your word to come alive in our hearts and give us greater understanding that we might have more content with, with, with which to praise you and might render you a more dedicated, self-denying obedience. We pray all this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. So let's start looking at uh, 2 Corinthians 11 in verse 1. If you remember from last week, it kind of began in chapter 10, a new discussion that's going to continue basically through the end of the book, which is, uh, it was a distinct shift in tone. Paul is now sort of defending his ministry against false teachers, uh, so-called super apostles, who were coming in trying to discredit Paul, usurp his leadership. And so this is really part of his defense of his ministry and his defense of, of his position in the church as, in a sense, their apostle. So this is really, it's a part of his argument for why his ministry is the true apostolic ministry. It's his uh, resume, if you will. Some of this is he's responding to objections that we don't really know what they were and are kind of left to guess or read between the lines. So we might speculate slightly, but we at least have uh, Paul's response here. And that's really the interesting thing with letters a lot of the time is we just don't always know what the other side of the conversation was and are sometimes left to piece it together. Which I think in some ways can be helpful because it almost... Um, makes it easier to apply to our context when we're not sure what the exact thing was that he was saying. It gives us a bit more of a broader, principial sort of perspective. Anyways, take a look at verse 1. I wish you would put up with a little foolishness for me. Yes, do put up with me. So Paul's going to defend his ministry, and he knows that in general, sort of commending yourself, presenting yourself in a positive way is often a foolish work. It's often seen as boastful or proud. And Paul knows that in a sense you could call this foolish, but he wants him to put up with this foolishness from him because he does see it necessary at this point in order to defend his ministry to protect his church. And uh, verse 2 gives us his good, good enough reason for why he's going to, in a sense, boast about his ministry. He says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, because I have promised you in marriage to one husband to present a pure virgin to Christ. Paul's concerned here for the purity of the church. And he employs that analogy of marriage, which we see employed throughout all scriptures. Like how often in the Old Testament is Israel compared to the Lord's wife and Israel's faithlessness compared um, to an adulterous wife. And so in the New Testament, we see in Ephesians 5, that comparison of marriage being like Christ and the church. And he wants this church presented to Christ as a pure virgin. And so what's interesting here is we have um, a sort of dichotomy that we see often in our own spiritual lives and in the church. And that's the difference of what we would have definitively in Christ, yet what we still are in the flesh. So the church, just like all true believers, in Christ we are pure perfectly pure because Christ's blood washes all sins. But in our actual walking out of daily life, we know we don't actually live pure. So in a sense, we have a, a, a status, a title of purity, but it's something we're still living up to. And so it is corporately in the church, which is what Paul's referring to here, that we as a church, 
yes, we are objectively pure in Christ, but in the actual visible nature, in the way we actually live, uh, there can be different measures of purity in our churches. Uh, Our own confession talks about this. I was reminded of um, the Westminster Confession, chapter 25, and uh, paragraphs 4. Paragraph 4 says this, that particular churches are more or less pure according as the doctrine of the gospels taught and embraced, ordinances administered, and public worship performed more or less purely in them. And then uh, paragraph 5 says that the purest churches under heaven are subject to both mixture and error, and some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ but synagogues of Satan. Uh, The synagogues of Satan is a reference to one of the letters in uh, Revelation to one of the churches. And so I think, although we're objectively pure, we can think of the purity of the church in this way. Is the gospel being purely taught? Is worship being purely performed? And there actually could be, in a sense, a grade or a gradient of the purity of our churches, depending on how much we've corrupted what God has given us in the word. And that was what we saw uh, throughout the Middle Ages, the slow corruption and impurity of the church. And if you think of an impurity in, say, like a mixture or a solution, uh, it's the addition of a contam- contaminant or something foreign that makes the mixture impure. And that's what we saw um, in the church in the Middle Ages, the continual addition of new rites, new rituals, new forms of worship, new elements of theology, and what would I guess we're going to celebrate on Saturday with Reformation Day uh, is the purifying of the church, which was in the Reformation, a return back to simple, pure gospel truth, which is just what Paul would have hoped for, a church that is pure and presented to Christ in purity. Because he fears, verse 3, he says, I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your minds may be seduced. See, again, he's continuing that sort of marriage analogy, a seduction of the mind seduced from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Having a, a pure, a sincere love for Christ the husband, they're being drawn away towards other lovers, which is just another way of talking about idolatries. We don't know exactly what they were dealing with here, but it seems like in Corinth they had both the attacks of Greek pagan philosophy on the one hand. You might think of the likes of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates. They had that kind of the worldliness coming in, and then also the Jewish sort of Pharisaic legalists. So they kind of had a uh, religious legalism on one side and then a worldly philosophy on the other, both competing to add to Christ, right? Jesus plus is the issue here. They're trying to add and corrupt the gospel. And it is a seductive doctrine. They make it sound really good on both sides. He says, and this is what it looks like for them to be taken away from purity to Christ. Verse four, if a person comes and preaches another Jesus whom we did not preach, or you receive a different spirit, which you had not received, or a different gospel, which you had not accepted, you put up with it splendidly. Uh, Maybe a little sarcasm there from Paul. So, So look how you put up with this impurity in teaching. And the three elements he puts here that they're dealing with are a different Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. 
And if we think of what different sort of philosophies do to Christianity in the world, uh, there's always going to be some change in who Jesus is, some change in who the Spirit is, some change in what the gospel is. And we need to watch out in our minds that we're not seduced by the way these things come deceptively. And so I was trying to think of some examples. Maybe you might think of some as well. Um, what, what are some of the different Jesuses that are proclaimed in this world? Most obviously, there's the just human Jesus, right? He's not divine. He couldn't have really risen from the dead. He was just a good man, a good teacher, right? That's a different Jesus. That's a corruption. Uh, we also have, I think even sometimes in the church, uh, there's like a tolerant Jesus, uh, if you've ever heard someone say, oh, my Jesus would never do that, or my Jesus would never punish people, my Jesus would never think this way. Um, I'm reminded of sort of a silly story, but I remember we had a, a, a church general meeting one time. This is a long time ago, not a church anyone knows. Um, and the debate was whether we would include in the budget money to fix the parking lot that was cracking and getting pretty old. And the thought was, if we don't do this now, it'll be a much more expensive project in the future. As remember, someone stood up and basically said, I know that Jesus would not pave the parking lot. He would use the money for something more spiritual. I remember, like, how are you, I'm like, maybe your opinion, but you're bringing Jesus into it now. But anyways, I'm sure we can all think of examples like that. My Jesus would not pave the parking lot. And um, it often becomes a Christ conformed to our image, right? The things that Jesus cares about are really just the things I care about. The things Jesus overlooks would be the things I overlook. That's a different Jesus. It's a corruption, right? And we can't ever forget that the Jesus of the Gospels is also the Jesus of Revelation, right? Who comes on the white horse with a sword in his mouth, uh, with robes dipped in blood, right? He's the lion and the lamb. Different Jesuses, but also different spirits, and this is something I want us to be continually reminded of, is that the outpouring of the Spirit is just as essential to the gospel as the resurrection of Christ. If there's, Jesus rose so that Pentecost could happen, and the church could be empowered by the Spirit. And we can't bifurcate those and separate them. Uh, the work of salvation is a work of Christ, a work of the Father, a work of the Spirit. And Paul is always also coming to the Spirit. It's just as significant to preach a different spirit as it is to preach a different Jesus. And I think we don't often think of that, right? We think of um, Jesus, but what do you mean a different spirit? And is that just as serious? And it is. Uh, that's what Paul's saying. They're receiving a different spirit. And so I, again, think of our day, how much, in a sense, spirituality language is used. And there very much is a different spirit taught that's sort of seen as a universal spirit, uh, the human spirit, or even almost like a mother nature type of spirit that, oh, we're all just connected by the one spirit, uh, some sort of force, you know, um, some sort of, uh, like uh, anyone that teaches sort of like the secret or that our positive thinking creates our reality is uh, usually a sort of worldview that sees the spirit as just being all of us equally uh, the nature, the universe, us, and that's a different spirit, right? That's not the Holy Spirit of Scripture. So we need to watch that we don't get seduced by spiritual language and seeing the work of the Spirit here and there in areas where the Holy Spirit clearly isn't. 
Uh, we need to be aware of a different spirit. Or um, even in the church, we can fall prey to just wrong thinking about the Holy Spirit in general. The thinking that the Holy Spirit's just like a force or a power or like a ghostly thing and not actually a person. The Holy Spirit is a person uh, with a mind, with a, uh, yeah, with personal being, one with God. A different spirit or a different gospel, which you had not accepted, you put up with it splendidly. So a different gospel. Uh, I think one way that we can think of what the gospel is and what different gospels are is if you think of this question and the answer to it is how can what's wrong with the world be made right? How someone answers that question is their gospel. How is what's wrong with the world to be made right? And in a sense, that's their salvation. Writing what's wrong is what salvation is. It's a deliverance into, uh, from the worse into the better. And we know that obviously the biblical gospel is that what's wrong is sin. Jesus comes to break the power of sin to redeem a people for a new creation. But what are some different gospels? And I was thinking about this a little bit. Um, we see this in our culture, I think, really strongly right now, and it's something we have to be aware of. Um, I've been reading a couple articles lately that were just talking about how increasingly uh, politics is taking the place of religion in our culture. That the sort of identifying markers, the sort of ethical cues people used to get primarily from religion is now being gotten primarily from political affiliation. That um, a political view represents your whole moral and ethical stance on life. And I think that we need to watch out for the way that there are political gospels. That is, promises that what's wrong with the world will be made right through political means. And there's both a conservative political gospel and there's a progressive political gospel. And so a, a conservative political gospel would say that What's wrong with the world will be made right by hanging on to things from the past or going back to the way things used to be. Whereas a progressive political gospel says we will fix the world by leaving outdated beliefs and behavior and moving on towards this. And it often gets posed as a battle of, you know, the moral side versus the immoral. But both political gospels are making moral claims. Both of them are, in a sense, a legalistic gospel, which both sides will say that if we could get the behavior of society to look like this, then we will have the society, the America we've always hoped for. Or the other side will say, no, no, if we could just change everyone's beliefs and behaviors to look like this, then we will have utopia or what have you. But this is actually legalism on both sides. The focus is that we will fix the world by changing outward behavior. And we know that that never works because the problem's a lot deeper than that. The problem is in the hearts of people and the problem is sin and things don't get fixed until Christ is the king of the human heart. And of course then there's going to be changes in society, changes in individual ethical behavior, but if we think that the changes themselves are the good news that will bring deliverance to the nation, we're actually following, falling prey to a different gospel. 
And I think one way we can test ourselves to see whether we're falling prey to this kind of thinking is the question of where do we put our hope and what causes us fear. So if our greatest fear is that politically we will turn this direction and we will have this outcome, that's a sign that we were putting hope in an external set of circumstances instead of putting our hope in Christ. Or if the thing we're yearning for is like, if we could only enact these policies, if we could only see these sorts of things change, oh, then we would be safe. But that betrays that we're actually putting hope in external moral change in society to fix what's wrong with the world instead of putting hope in Christ to fix what's wrong with the world. And, not, I'm, and I'm not saying it's wrong to care about policies and care about politics. We should. Jesus cares about that stuff, but it's a question of hope, okay? And I hope you guys are following me. Uh, I'll, I'll pause for any comments or questions on that. Anybody got any thoughts? I find it interesting in the Old Testament, the Israelites wanted a king so bad. And I see a parallel here in, in the U.S. We want a president so bad. Part of what is fueling this, this political the politics that we have is, is the masses want to put their, their their hope and their faith in the guy that's in the White House, and that's what's driving a lot of a lot of the dissension. Because as you pointed out, the problem is deeper than who lives in the White House. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because everyone recognizes that uh, there's issues, right? No one disagrees that there's things massively wrong with our society, and uh, there's a lot of suffering, there's a lot of sin, and without hope in Christ, there's no other place to put your hope than in the hands of people, and therefore it becomes an all-or-nothing sort of gambit where the future of humanity depends upon how we perform here instead of it depending on Jesus and in his hands. And so... I think it's actually a good testimony if others see us level-headed and peaceable, not, fr- not frenetic about what the future might look like, not caught up in fear and anxiety. Uh, the church has had it real bad at some times, and if persecution comes or uh, things get real hard for us, that, we have really nothing to fear because we have Jesus on the throne, and he takes care of his church. So uh, thanks for that. Anyone else got anything? Does that, do, you guys, do you guys get, get what I'm talking about when I say that both sides preach a uh, moral gospel that ends up legalistic? Yes. With really strict ethical codes, right? It's, n- it's not that one side wants to be moral and one doesn't. Both sides have a very strict morality that wants to be enforced on everybody. And um, even if one side might say, what's wrong with the world is individual behavior, lack of responsibility. If we fix that, we fix society. Another side might say, what's wrong with the world are our societal structures. If we fix that, then we get utopia. Both are wrong. Jesus has to change the heart, and then individuals change, and society changes, and we work towards peace and justice. Sound good? Uh, Yes, Becky.
Yeah, and I think um, maybe a distinguishing line that's helpful there is that as one who's teaching God's word, even as just we look at God's word individually, we ought to be able to declare every principle that scripture has to bear. Uh, What it teaches about the the sacredness of life, whatever. Uh, And politically, the Bible influences a lot. But what it doesn't tell us is that you should vote for this person or that person or promote this policy package or that policy package Um, And taking it from the level of principles to strict application um, is probably better left to the consciences of individuals, but we still want to be faithful to proclaim the principles that Scripture gives that might guide us all. So, yeah, thanks for that. Uh, Let's take a look at verse 5. So this is kind of Paul has set up here his big theme, his defense of his ministry. And we're going to go faster. (laughs) Uh, Now I consider myself in no way inferior to those super apostles, right? He's kind of poking fun here at the false apostles coming in, claiming they're way better than Paul. Even if I'm untrained in public speaking, okay, that seems to be an objection against Paul. He wasn't a good public speaker, surprisingly. He says, I'm certainly not untrained in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made that clear to you in everything. Okay, Paul has the knowledge of Christ, and that's what he's taught in the church. Or did I commit a sin by humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by taking pay from them to minister to you. So another objection that seems to have come against Paul was the fact that he didn't request money from the church in Corinth. And to them, that actually made Paul seem lowly, that Paul was in a sense willing to work for free. Right? We can even think of um, like an intern who wants to go work at a big company. They might even work for free because they know they're not quite valuable enough to the country, company to deserve pay yet. And they're maybe uh, looking at Paul that way, that like you don't even believe in your ministry enough to take pay from us. And Paul's, Paul's going to explain why that was the case. He says, I didn't want to burden you. Um, When I was present with you and in need, verse 9, I didn't burden anyone since the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my needs. I have kept myself and will keep myself from burdening you in any way. So the churches in Macedonia, like Philippi and Berea, they were supporting Paul financially, so he didn't need help from Corinth. And he didn't want to bring money into the equation and maybe um, upset his ministry in Corinth. And what I find kind of interesting about this is the fact that It seems from the previous chapters that Corinth was a much more prosperous uh, church than the churches in Macedonia. The churches in Macedonia seemed pretty poor, but Paul was more willing to take money from them than the church at Corinth. And I think uh, just anecdotally, when I think in my life, it seems like often uh, richer churches and often, at times, richer people can often make a bigger stink about money uh, than those that actually don't have very much of it. Um, just imagine all these wealthy people in Corinth just taking issue with Paul's finances and do you really deserve our support? Why should we give our money to you or whatever? But uh, he was getting supported by Macedonia. Uh, He says, as the truth of Christ is in me, verse 10, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Caia. Why? 
because I don't love you, God knows I do. So they actually thought also that Paul's lack of taking their finances was actually a lack of love for them. Kind of the idea of like, if you really loved us, you would let us serve you financially. You'd let us give you money. Um, but maybe you don't even care about us enough to let us provide for you. You know, kind of like we could imagine someone taking offense if we, say, offered them hospitality uh, when they're traveling through. And they're like, no, I, like, what? You don't like me enough to even come stay at my house? Um, it, it might be something like that going on for Paul. Verse 12. But I'll continue to do what I'm doing in order to deny an opportunity to those who want to be regarded as our equals and what they boast about. So Paul's like, I'm not going to start taking finances from you guys in order to compete with these false apostles just on their, the things they're boasting about. I'm not going to play by their rules. I'm not going to play their games. These people, verse 13, are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder... For Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no great surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will be according to their works. So again, these people are disguising themselves as an angel of light like Satan. And this kind of reminds us back up to verse 3 of how Satan deceived Eve by his cunning and craftiness. He made the tree seem like a good thing to partake of. And... That's what these false apostles are doing. Uh, these, they're false apostles because they're pretending to have been sent by Christ in ministry, but they've not been. And they're being deceitful, and they're actually servants of Satan. How scary would that be to hear from a minister of Christ that the leaders in your church were actually servants of Satan and not servants of Christ? That'd be some scary stuff. Their end will be according to their works. One thing I find interesting here um, is that they're called, they disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And this is what people promoting false gospels always do. Whether it's uh, leaders in the church or leaders politically in society, everyone markets themselves as I'm serving what is right. I'm the one who's seeking to do the right thing in the right way. Uh, No one is ever going to come out and say I'm seeking to do wrong. Everyone promotes their, uh, their uh, agenda as right. And we need to be discerning enough to actually know what is right, know what is wrong, so we can discern. And their end will be according to their works. We can think of Christ telling us that you will know them by their fruit, right? When the people come say, Lord, Lord, he says, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. And we saw this a lot in the book of Titus, that one of the easiest ways to actually know the false teachers was to look at their lives. And Jesus shows us with the Pharisees all the time that they, although they said they were keeping the law externally, they were clearly doing so out of pride. They were devouring widows' households. They were greedy. And it was clearly um, a front. And it seems to be that their works will make themselves manifest. And we can discern Truth and error often from the fruit it produces, right? As John the Baptist said, wisdom will be known by her children. Uh, any, any comments or questions before we go ahead? All right, verse 16. I repeat, let no one consider me a fool, but if you do at least accept me as a fool 
so that I can boast a little. So this is kind of what he said in verse 1, right? I know this boasting, self-commendation is kind of dumb, but it's necessary at this point. What I'm saying in this matter of boasting, I don't speak as the Lord would, but as it were, foolishly. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will also boast. For you, being so wise, gladly put up with fools. In fact, you put up with it if someone enslaves you, if someone exploits you, if someone takes advantage of you, if someone's arrogant towards you, if someone slaps you in the face. I say this to our shame. We have been too weak for that. So this seems to be a, an ironic or almost sarcastic way. Paul's saying, it's like, oh, you're thinking that we are weak and um, these new leaders you have are strong and powerful. He's like, yeah, they're using their power to exploit you, take advantage of you. Oh, if only we could have been strong enough to have done that too. Uh, Paul's using just his rhetoric here to sort of show the church the foolishness of going after these false apostles. He says, you don't even see how they're treating you. You've allowed these worldly leaders to come in and take advantage of you. But in whatever anyone dares to boast, I'm talking foolishly, I also dare. Okay, so Paul's now going to take up the gauntlet, and this is in a sense Paul's resume, right? So if we're thinking of what does Paul consider to be his qualifications for apostolic office, here it is. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? Um, these first three actually give us the hint that these were maybe Judaizers that he was dealing with. People that would have been seeking power based on their, uh, ge- on their genetic heritage, based on their Judaic law keeping. Uh, so he's saying, these Jews think they've got it. He says, I'm of the stock of Abraham. I'm in the same, same league. Are they servants of Christ? I'm talking like a madman. I'm a better one. Right? He says, like, to try to say that you're better than someone else, you actually kind of have to be in a madman state of mind to do that. But Paul does feel it's necessary here. Far more labors, many more imprisonments, far worse beatings, many times near death. Okay, now Paul's list here, it's a wild, comprehensive list of suffering and Paul's exploits for the gospel. And Paul considers this to be what qualifies him ahead of those super apostles. And just listen to this, and just think of even what one of these things would be to most of us, not to mention all of this for one person. Five times I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Right, 39 lashes was the most the law allowed to give because you would often die if you went beyond that. Five times I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. That This was a, a Gentile punishment from the Romans. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. And this is actually before the shipwreck we see in the book of Acts. So that would have been his fourth shipwreck. I've spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers, toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and without clothing. Not to mention other things, there's the daily pressure on me, my concern for all the churches. 
Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? What we see here is Paul's utter commitment to the cause of the gospel. His utter self-denial, his utter, um, as Christ said, following Jesus and bearing his cross, taking it up, denying himself, following Christ. And Paul's saying, if you're going to boast about your eloquence and your heritage, I'm going to boast about my utter commitment to the gospel, even to the point of the greatest personal loss. And that's often a way for us to judge someone's commitment to something. How much have they actually suffered to attain it? And we're really easily in the church um, impressed by celebrity preachers, people who are eloquent and seem successful. But probably more often, the truer mark of a true gospel ministry is that willingness to actually be low, to suffer for the gospel, to bear difficulty for the gospel. And we need to watch that we're not just impressed by flash and eloquence, but by actually a heart that's willing to suffer for Christ. And Paul's pastoral concern here, I think, is really beautiful. Uh, um, His empathy in verse 29. He says, who is weak and I am not also weak. The heart of a minister should empathize with the suffering and the weak. Who's made to stumble? This is probably stumbling with sin. And I I do not burn with indignation. Uh, These are the, the two great ministries in life. Not just in the church, but for each one of us. Everyone is afflicted by sin and suffering, right? Suffering, weakness, but also sin. And to be able to be both someone who empathizes with suffering and weakness, to care for people like that, but also to burn with anger against the sin that destroys people's lives. Um, Those are the two prongs of all ministry, ministering to sinners and sufferers. The gospel brings comfort to the suffering. It brings salvation to the sinful. That's Paul's pastoral um, heart. If boasting is necessary, I will boast about my weakness. This is his, his summary statement. Paul's big concluding hammer is that if I'm going to play this boasting game with you super apostles, they boast in their eloquence, their status, their power. I boast in my weakness. And we'll see this a lot more outlined in that great chapter in chapter 12 where Paul talks about his weakness and how Christ's power is made known in it. But Paul boasts in weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows I'm not lying. In Damascus, a ruler under King Aretas guarded the city of Damascus in order to arrest me. So I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. Uh, That story is taken from uh, Acts chapter 9 is where you can actually read of that. And so in the church... Um, Even a core value of our church here is that it's a place for weakness. The world values values strength, power, might, those who can climb their way to the top, get what they want. But God values the weak. God values weakness. God has always used sufferers. Christ came in the lowliest place. And the path to victory for Christ was the path of suffering the way of the cross. And so it is for each one of us. If we want to be high in God's kingdom, it's not by elevating ourselves, but it's always by taking the lowliest place, like Christ washing feet. 
And so let's um, look for leaders or people we even respect and listen to um, that, are, that are not just climbing and politic, um, making themselves uh, to be just a marketing ploy, something to um, gain followers, grow. Uh, but we want to be a church that values weakness. And I think just a good challenge for us as we see Paul's here utter commitment to the gospel to just be reminded once again of the call to us to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, follow Christ. Most of us have suffered far, far less than Paul did for the gospel, but we have the same Christ. We believe the same gospel. And so to be ready to suffer, to be ready to give things up in order that we might obey God more closely, that's the sort of commitment we want to the way of Jesus because it is the best way to live. And even though it is, seems now a path of suffering, Christ promised that even in this life, anyone who's given up a family or houses or lands for my sake, he says, you receive many times more, even in this life, and then in the age to come, eternal life. So really, as Christians, we can't lose. The, anything we suffer or give up for Christ's sake, we actually get back greater reward in this life even, and then even eternal life on top of that. So let's not be afraid of the future. Let's not be afraid if um, culture keeps going in an adverse direction and we might face persecution, we might face suffering, we might face loss. Uh, that's, that's no fear for Jesus because Christ's church always advances through weakness and suffering and it's a topsy-turvy kingdom. And uh, that's the kingdom that God has given us. Uh, stuff to learn from Paul's ministry in 1 Corinthians 12. Um, anyone have any last comments or questions from this chapter? Alrighty, let's uh, close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus was not afraid to identify with the lowly, with us creatures and sufferers, but he came and took our form and even um, takes on our humanity for all eternity. Lord, we thank you for the humility and lowliness of Christ that he walked the way of grief for us that we might receive such rich eternal blessings. We ask that we will have the commitment and resolve to offer ourselves up as living sacrifices, to be willing to endure any hardship for the sake of your kingdom, to be willing to suffer, to bear reproach like Christ did, to bear the hatred of the world. If only we will bring you glory, bring honor to your name by how we live. So Lord, make us a praising people, a worshiping people at all times. We ask your blessing over our service of worship forthcoming and that you will turn our minds and our hearts towards you uh, to give you praise, but also receive from your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.